Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 10th, 2022. I have a little question for you, a little quiz. Last week, we had Hilary on, the author of a wonderful new book out on Mouse uh, on Art Spiegelman called Mouse Now. Uh, later in the week, I'm talking to the historian Ellis Coase. He has a new book out, Race and Reckoning. Another author I'm talking to later this week is Jerry Stahl, who has an intriguing new book out called 999, One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. One of the best titles, I think, of the year. So the interesting question is, what do all these three authors have in common? The answer, for those of you who don't know, is they're all showing up to the Miami Book Fair uh, you know, between November the 13th and 20th of this year. I think it's America's leading book fair. And I'm absolutely thrilled and honored that my guest today is another member of the Miami Book Fair crowd, Stacey Schiff. She doesn't need much of an introduction, and she's talking to us from her home in uh, New York City. Uh, Stacy had a big breakfast to get ready for this. Uh, she turned the air conditioning off because I hear it's very hot. Stacy, are you going to Miami? I am so looking forward to going to Miami, although I wish I had a title like the one you just mentioned because that is truly an award winner. Yeah, your title is a bit boring, The Revolutionary. Yeah, Tell I'm, me a little I'm... bit about this new book, The Revolutionary. This was an attempt to recapture someone whom the founders all swear was the man of the hour and whom we know nothing about. So this was really a, you know, Sam Adams, he's a beer, Samuel Adams, he's a mystery. Let's find out why Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and so many other 18th century figures called him the man of the revolution. Stacey, uh, the book has already won, as all your books, many plaudits, many great reviews, starred reviews on Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and all the rest of it. Uh, Ron Chernow, who's one of your great admirers, said that you, you teased the truth out of Adams. Um, as a biography, you're one of America's leading biographers. Is that your business, to come to these people that people don't know and interpret them and reveal them? I, I think, you know, two things are at work there. One is that you are looking to write the book that isn't yet on the shelf. So you're looking, you know, sort of what's the interstitial piece that's missing. And I think you always want to solve a mystery. And the mysteries are the people whose names are familiar, but where we don't really have an image of the person. And in this case, it's someone who kind of conspires to disappear. So there's the added question of why does he disappear? Why was he so crucial? And then why is he so much missing from that picture? And how do we, we're, how do we pull the strands back together? Are you that type of person, Stacey, when you meet someone at a party or sit next to them on an airplane, you're always trying to figure them out? Absolutely. You knew that already, though. And by the way, doesn't everybody do that? Doesn't everybody ask the inopportune, unwelcome questions? No, most people, Stacey, and especially in America these days, they only want to talk about themselves. I don't like to talk about myself either. That's why I write biography. So it, biography is a, a kind of an escape, an avoidance of talking about the self? You know, the biographer is always living in someone, if, she, if she's doing her job correctly anyway, she's always living in someone else's skin. So you are always 
you either have a double vision at all times where you're living your life and you're also somewhat occupying this other life, or you've just kind of slipped into someone else's existence. And it's a, it's refreshing. It's a, you know, it's a lovely, richer way to live and you can avoid so many things in your own life by doing that. So Samuel Adams, as you say, he's a beer, he's famous as a beer. I don't know how other, many other men or women get beers named after them. Uh-huh. Has this always been a, a project of yours? And in, I mean, as writers, we all have projects at the back of our minds. Sometimes they get realized, sometimes they don't. Have you always wanted to write a book on Adams? No, it was a it was a sort of late arriving idea. I had spent five years writing about the Salem witch trials, and I was aware of the fa- and I had years earlier written a book about Benjamin Franklin and Franklin's years in France, and and this is the book that sort of connects the two. I mean, I had really sort of been thinking, how did we get from this sort of benighted moment in the 17th century to you know Thomas Jefferson to Enlightenment America, and so this is kind of the missing chapter. And it helped that Adams is so kind of little known and yet alluring. He makes a cameo in my Franklin book, and and this is sort of where I started. He makes a cameo and I suddenly thought, wait, you know, we all refer to him as, you know, the firebrand or the great radical, but there isn't that much known about him. And why is that? And and how can I go digging down that path? And the next thing I knew, I I was sort of obsessed. I will admit that I am from Adams, Massachusetts, which was named for Samuel Adams. Was he an, an accidental participant in history? My sense uh, from the book is that he almost stumbled onto the historical stage without any knowledge of what exactly he was doing. Is that fair, or did, is he a more self-knowing, all-knowing figure than than than, than I'm presenting him as? Yeah, I would I would give him full points for being calculating. Um, the one thing I will, the one thing that does align with what you just said is that he, there are three acts to his life. And the first, in the first act, he's a complete failure. For the first 40 years of his life, he only barely ekes out a living. He really amounts to nothing. He has no career. For the next 12 years, he is the leading radical in Boston, which is the most radical place in America at the time. And then the third act is equally, is as disappointing as was the first act. So there's a that has an incidental quality to it, but his actions during those years and his writings during those years are extremely thought out. And I mean, he's a, he schemes. He's an extraordinarily gifted strategist. But he but his mission aligns just with those twelve years. So to to me, that makes for a really interesting life. Stacey, I'm talking to you from uh, San Francisco, just on the edge of Silicon Valley. The ideology of Silicon Valley is failure is good for you. The more you fail, uh, the, the more suited you are for a life of action and ultimately, I guess, success. Uh, is there some truth to that, to Adam's life? Did he need those 40 years of failure to make a success of himself, to have a beer named after him eventually? I don't wouldn't say necessary to the success. I would say that those 40 years gave him a very good grounding among the people of Boston. He both has his ear to the ground in terms of what Bostonians of all walks of life are saying, and he has made himself known to and popular with the people of Boston. And both of those serve him tremendously well. I mean, in a way that he might not have done had he had a career, had he spent any, had he had to spend time at the office, so to speak. So he he really is very comfortable in the streets. He's 
exceptionally good at connecting um, the high and the low parts of Boston. He's a man with you know two Harvard degrees, but he's perfectly comfortable in the streets. Um, and that's also extremely important, and it will perhaps explain something of those aimless years. Was he a man of action or a man of ideas, or is that the wrong dichotomy to present? I'm not sure I would, I would separate the two. He's, he's very much a man of ideas in the sense that if you look at him from a modern context, you would call him one of the most successful revolutionaries in history, hands down. I mean, he has modern civil resistance strategy to it figured out to a T without having read a book on the subject because it didn't exist at the time. And he writes, he's a propagandist most of all. He writes, he crystallizes these ambient ideas which no one has yet thoroughly articulated in a way that makes them digestible across the board. So very much um, a propagandist. He writes under more than 30 pseudonyms. He's immensely prolific. So I would say that he is a man of words, a man of ideas. He's, he's much more comfortable always on the page than he is speaking. Um, there are very few moments where he is, sort of stands up. There are a few moments, in fact, which are quite important, but more he's more present on the page often than he is in person. Most of the great revolutionaries in history, uh, Stacey, are better at destroying than creating, one thinks of Robespierre or Lenin. Um, is, is that true also of Adams as a revolutionary? Is he better at tearing things down than building? In a way, you could perhaps tar him with that brush, not so much in that he's destructive, but in that he really doesn't have a tremendous amount of interest in institutions. So that, and this is part of the reason why the third act is so unsatisfactory in his life. It, when it comes time after the revolution, when it comes time to put the country back together again, he's not entirely present. He doesn't really, he doesn't subscribe to federalism. He doesn't love the direction in which the country is going. Um, he feels he's much more aimed at sort of the purity of the old world rather than the wealthy mercantile new America that is that is that he sees coming to life around him. And that leaves him sort of off the pretty much off the map in those years. So in that respect, I'd say it wouldn't say destructive, but he doesn't really participate in that. And that's and that's part of the reason why we why we will lose him. Many of the founders, Stacey, were, were steeped in history particularly classical history, uh, was Adams? Who, who were his favorite authors? And what were his favorite, favorite moments uh, in history? Did he look back at antiquity, at Greece or Rome or, uh, or the Renaissance? He, very much so. And, you know, this is what's so lovely about the founders is they've all, it seems like they've all just swallowed John Locke whole, essentially. Um, he's familiar with Rousseau. He's later familiar with Hume. He's very familiar with Montesquieu. Um, all of the ancient. I mean, he has a master's degree from Harvard. He's obviously, you know, done his homework. And all of those ideas, all of those ideas which, you know, resonate so much in the founding of democracy are the ideas that he is trying to bring to the table. So, you know, even, even when he's critiquing a royal governor, he will compare him to Julius Caesar. I mean, there's tremendous classical allusions throughout the literature. You mentioned Rousseau and Locke. Um very different theorists of democracy. Is there a particular writer or thinker who you think inspired Adams? You know, I think events probably inspired him more than a particular thinker. I mean, I think obviously so many of these ideas were in the air. So he's hardly the only person at this point to begin pointing out um, the infringement of American rights and this, you know, this 
feeling that somehow the colonies you know, needed a little more elbow room. Um, this is before the blundering you know, British policy. But there's a, there's a moment in the 1740s when he's still at Harvard where his family is bankrupted by um, a piece of British legislation, a very severe piece of British, British legislation. And I would say that that probably pays, plays a larger role in his thinking um, than does any single philosopher. He will write his Harvard thesis on, his master's thesis on the question of whether if someone's rights are in, are, are, are in some way infringed upon, he, has, he is basically liberated from his loyalty to the crown. And that was because almost certainly of this piece of legislation that ruins his family. But it sounds to me as if he's much closer to a, a Lockean liberalism with its focus on property rights than Rousseau with his nostalgia for a world before property when we were innocent and pure. The cry in, those, in these years is all liberty and property. Those are the, those are the cries in the streets and those are certainly the, the cries in Adams's, in Adams's writings. You call him, Stacy a revolutionary, but he was using the ideas of Locke and many of the ideas of the 17th century English revolution against the king. Um, what makes him a revolutionary, a real revolutionary? Wasn't he simply just reading the English stuff and saying, well, if you want to maintain consistency, this is what you want to do. I don't want to turn everything upside down. I simply want to conform to what you already think in the first place, your principles. You know, one of the things that's difficult with Adams is to figure out the exact moment um, where he decides independence is really the way the colonies need to go. When does he come to that conclusion? And traditionally, people have said that in 1768, when British troops first occupy Boston, he it, it changes his world. And that is the moment when he basically crosses that Rubicon. We have nothing on paper to support that. But somewhere between 1768, when troops occupy Boston for the first time, and the first shots at Lexington, um, he has come around to this feeling that you know, this breach needs to be made, that the colonies can no longer remain subservient to a power which doesn't give them the voice that, to which they feel entitled. So in that sense, he's very much a revolutionary. Um, the question is what actually pushes him over that edge and, you know, that's something for which there's unfortunately no smoking gun. What about his relations with the other founding fathers? Who was he close to? Who did he not like? Is someone going to do a rap musical about his life at some point? <laughs> I think you might be on the way. Um, he's very close to his cousin, John. Um, and it's from John Adams that we know a very great deal about him. John Adams, who's much younger. It's an interesting relationship because we think today of John as the sort of great statesman. Um, and Samuel is the sort of, I don't know, bumpkin in some way. Samuel is the, the, the urban dweller. He's the refined Bostonian. John Adams grows up in the country as you know, a farmer's son um, and is younger. And Samuel Adams, in fact, recruits John Adams. And in fact, he recruits most of, he recruits Hancock. He recruits a, a great number of the names whom you would recognize as sort of America's first patriots. And, it's, and so it is sort of a recruiting office that he's running here. So he's very close to John. John leaves tremendous, as John Adams always did, tremendously vivid accounts of Adams at primary moments in his life. Um, he's, he's very admiring of the self-possession, of the force and the eloquence and the refinement um, of Samuel, Samuel Adams, which comes as something of a surprise to those of us who think of him as a kind of rough character. 
Um, but, but John always speaks about the, the gentility of Adams's home and the elegance of his manner. Um, he's close philosophically with Thomas Jefferson, who thinks of Adams as the earliest, the most active, the most persevering of the, Amer of the American patriots, and who tries to channel um, Samuel Adams's spirit. And he is at many times um, at the side of and associated with John Hancock, with whom he has a very complicated on again, off again relationship. So maybe that's the play right there, because they're two extremely different characters. Um, Hancock is very interested in um, claiming the spotlight. He's very interested in, um, in dressing as well and as ostentatiously as possible. And Samuel Adams is really a very um, pure, Puritan Calvinist. I mean, he really doesn't go in for the wretched excess, which John, which John Hancock is so much attracted to. I'm curious as to that Puritanism. What does it teach us today? I mean, all biography, of course, is inevitably in some way a commentary on our current moment. Um, I'm doing a show early next year with Richard Haas, of quite a distinguished political scientist. He has a new book out, The Bill of Obligations, the 10 habits of good citizens, um, obligation rather than rights. What can we learn about Samuel Adams in terms of obligation over rights? And perhaps the role of Puritanism, which has been lost in, 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 in establishing political values? Well, I think to, to your first point, um, Adams is so utterly um, religiously devoted to the idea that ordinary citizens, when they band together, are more powerful than they realize they are, and insists on that over and over again, and insists on you know galvanizing the population and reminding people that if, they, um, if there is some kind of unity, they can achieve the impossible. So there's that real sense there of, you know, that, that we are not in a very, in a very stripped down religious sense. We are not we are not to respond to a great authority. We are our own authority, which is a very, you know, obviously a very Protestant thought. Um, and there is a sense as well, and I don't think we really get a taste of this when we study the American Revolution in school. There's a real anti-elitist streak here. Um, there's a real resentment of the power elite of the oligarchy, which has been running New England, most of the colonies, in fact of the political appointees who have a handed appointment from family member to family member and left the rest of the population out of the, um, you have know, disenfranchised the rest of the population who do not feel the government is responsive to them. And there's also a sense at this point, which is I think also very topical that where the elite are waiting for the world to return to normal. They think, okay, you know, I don't know what's got into these people. They're under some kind of delusion. They keep comparing this to Salem witchcraft. It doesn't occur to them that these, these new ideas that are swirling around are actually powerful enough to change the world and that it isn't going back um, to the world on which, with which they were familiar. No element of hypocrisy here, Stacey. I mean, you mentioned earlier that he was a graduate of Harvard College, certainly uh, not a working class boy, He's a cousin from one of the most distinguished uh, New England families. Um, did he have his cake and eat it when it came to populism? No, I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy here in terms of um, loopholes, which he will create and then jump through, believe me, in terms of undoing um, crown officials. He's not, he's, his family has been obviously ruined by British le legislation. Um, he has been shunted aside for various appointments. He's a member of the House of Representatives. He is a member of the government during these years. Um, 
but he is not a member of that ruling elite, which is a very small circle of very wealthy intermarried families who control everything. I mean, there, there, is, there is a little bit of an echo with us today. How far did his democracy stretch? Did he believe everyone should have the vote? What was his attitude to women and what was his take on slavery? So women is an interesting one because he, he believes in education for both boys and girls and he believes in it very strongly. And he's very careful. I mean, one of the things that he does um, so brilliantly is to design protests which involve women and children so that everyone in Boston, not just the men, but the women and children too can somehow be involved in, this, in these kind of street movements that he's organizing. Um, in terms of slavery, he's very clear. Um, for at his second marriage, his former mother-in-law um, gives the couple, the newlyweds, um, Adams and his second wife, a slave, a slave as a wedding gift, which sounds horrific, mm. but which was not uncommon practice in, in Massachusetts at the time. Adams um, says, basically, you, she, she cannot come to live in my house if she's a slave. And he emancipates her. And Surrey, as she's called, will live with them for several decades. He always asks about her. She's clearly a very close member of the family. And in those years, this is the 1760s, he is in fact involved in an abolition um, effort which goes nowhere, um, as he will do again later, but neither of those efforts obviously um, gets any traction. The book, I'm guessing, is presented as revealing everything about Samuel Adams, but is there stuff, Stacey, that you still don't know that you, if, if, if you had the opportunity to sit down with him, um, you would ask him about? What still is a mystery in, in your mind about Samuel Adams? Well, you know, your question about when did he, when does he come to the idea of independence? I mean, that's, it, it's crucial. And it would be, you know, it would be heavenly to know what the answer there was. And, you know, how much of this is calculated in advance? He's an immensely shrewd thinker. Um, but it's very, and, he, and he's strangely prescient. He seems to always be able to guess what the next British move will be. Mm. How much of that is lucky? how much of that was just very obvious from the hints that were in the air, although no one else was picking up on them. And how much of that is, you know, is just, he really had mapped this out in a very, in a very calculated way. Um, you know, the, the British, as we know, the British missteps between um, the Sugar Act and the revolution are many, but he seems always to anticipate what, what one will come next and to count on basically the British blundering. And at times, when I mean, there were two or three years in the early 1770s after the Boston Massacre, he's really the only person, um, he's still the only voice who's speaking out. Everyone else has gone quiet and just sort of been exhausted by all of this unrest and gone back to you know, doing what they do. He's the, the only one still carrying the torch. Some people have joked about him being the first head of American Secret Service of the CIA, an insider who mastered the world of intelligence. Conspiracy theorists listening or watching this might think to themselves, well, maybe he had access to the British. Could he have been a double agent? Did he have access to the, the, the British spies, to the British Secret Service, to the British Foreign Office, do you think? No, I would seriously doubt it, but I would say that he was definitely guilty of quite a bit of conspiring himself. I mean, there, there, there's a certain amount of, you know, the occasional pothole digging and then watching the crown officials fall right into the pothole, the, the trap that you've just set for them. So there's definitely a certain amount of that. You know, the, the, most, the most devastating for a biographer seen in this life is the description that John Adams leaves us of 
Samuel Adams in Philadelphia at the Continental Congress um, feeding his papers to the fire because he doesn't want for his Confederates, obviously, to be discovered because they will be hung as traitors. So there is to our questions, to our unanswered questions for Samuel Adams, you know, that would be at the top of the list. You know, who was giving you this information? Whom were you in touch with? How did you design? How were you designing these things? But a great, a very great deal is either cut into shreds by Adams or fed to the fire because he obviously is, you know, fomenting revolution and needing to make sure that there are no fingerprints left. The more I hear about him, he sounds so intriguing, so complex. He reminds me a little bit of Machiavelli, a man also uh, who had a, a really profound insight into power, prescient when it comes to power, but whose life was also a great mix of tragedy and failure and success. Um, has that ever occurred to you? Did, did he read Machiavelli? I don't suppose Machiavelli was a very popular writer during the American Revolution. You know, it's such a great question. We have John Adams's library, which is unfair, but we don't have Samuel Adams. I doubt he owned, you know, a tremendous library just because he, he didn't have enough money. But we don't know everything he read. I'm laughing because the word Machiavellian was used as an insult by everyone. Mm. Both both sides accuse the other of being Machiavellian. You know, that's that's the beauty of the 18th century. The same insults get traded back and forth. You know, each side accuses the other of being conspiratorial and oily tongued and Machiavellian. Whatever the insult is, everyone lobs the same ones at each other. If there's a term, Adamsian, I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing that right, what would it mean? In, in the case of Samuel Adams or John Adams, do we have to- Samuel, your, your man, the revolutionary. Well, I, would say, I would say a man who really, um, who was really a man of the people and who, was, who subscribed to this belief um, that ordinary people should have a voice in their politics and should, and should be heard moreover. Um, I mean, there really is this purity to his thinking and it's sometimes simplistic perhaps um, that there should be you know, deeply representative government and that anyone who, um, exerted himself to make himself heard should be heard. So in that sense, perhaps he was an inheritor of the, the levelers, of the Putney debates, of, of that, that kind of radicalism in England. Is that fair? I, I think there's less, there's more of a sense of, you know, settled government is a good idea. Um, you know, I'm not sure I would say he hailed from any particular school, um, but I would say that, you know, all of those charges that got made their way into the Declaration of Independence, all of those, you know, usurpations of rights and abuses of rights, he's very, very attuned to. And he makes it his business to advertise them as much as possible so that the government will be more responsive to the people. I mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's essentially just a, you know, very pure-minded populist. And a man, of course, he is. Um, we did a show today, uh, last week, with Richard Reeves, the Brooking analyst, on the crisis of masculinity in America today. Uh, for young boys in school, where Richard Reeves has all sorts of fixes for masculinity, boys should go to school uh, a year after girls. Would it help boys learn about themselves to read about Samuel Adams? Is he uh, a paragon of masculinity in some way or other? I don't know if he's a paragon of masculinity. I, I think he's an incredibly stirring and noble character, which is what which was what largely drew me to him. I mean, he's he's it is a you know tremendously idealistic life, and he lives purely for those ideals and only for those ideals. And it's you know in that sense, it's really quite extraordinary what what he's able to accomplish given. Um, the fact that ideals aren't really worth much, much of the time um, is quite extraordinary. So I think it's a really rousing, inspiring life. Yes. 
I got to ask the final question, Stacey. Everyone's going to ask you this question. It's a dumb one, but I got to ask you anyway. What what does what would Adams think if he came back to life in 2020 and saw Donald Trump and January 6th? What what do you think he'd think? You know, I, it's very hard to transport a historical figure to to our present. He'd be um, disappointed, I'm guessing, wouldn't he? Well, I'm just thinking, you know, democracy was something that he fought so hard and so long for. Um, I think that anything that in any way tarnished the democratic principles would be heartbreaking. Sure, absolutely. But would he see Trump and Trumpism as a, um, as a, uh, an undermining of the, the American Republic, of the whole experiment of democracy, do you think? It's hard to say. I think if he thought that the system were working, if the institutions were working, um, and the people were heard, then America was working. Um, you know, he's not. Well, let me revise the question then, because you've you've asked the better, you've implied a better question than the Trump question. If he came back to the America of 2022, would he be disappointed? Do you think? Yeah, you know, I think it would be very hard not to be dis disappointed by how toxic our political discourse has become. Right. I mean, and the yes. inequality. The the existence of new aristocracies and of enormous wealth, which would Absolutely. have been unimaginable to Samuel Adams. Absolutely. That's why I said there's a tremendous resonance with today. I think the feeling that we had, you know, we had this, you know, pol these political dynasties who had a lock on power was precisely what he was hoping to, you know, clean out. And here we are again. So I think, yes, in that respect, there's a, there would be a tremendous sense that we needed to do something about this. We need a new John Adams, Stacey. Is there anyone in... In the work, is anyone around today who uh, uh, is it, it reminds you of, of Samuel Adams, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Donald, not Donald Trump, of course. I don't even know which side of the aisle that person would hail from necessarily, but I promise I'll think about it before I get to Miami. Well, have fun in Miami. Uh, congratulations on this wonderful new book, The Revolutionary. Like all your books, it's going to be a huge bestseller. And finally, Stacey, uh, what else are you reading these days? I am reading the new Kate Atkinson novel because I am a Kate Atkinson fan. And I just finished the new Andrew Sean Greer, which is fabulous. I read mostly fiction because, you know, I'd have to write this nonfiction stuff during the day.